is a cost for our faith. We may not give up our life like Stephen did, but there is a cost. And today, Pastor David will show us what that looked like for the early church. Acts is about facts. That's what it's about. It's not a story. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a you know, religious story that's, you know, sort of true spiritually. This is a book, a historical book about facts like any history book that you would read uh, in a classroom, okay? Except I think it's a little bit more exciting than most of those. And it is the history of the early church. That's what it is. He's very detailed. He gives us a lot of detail about what's going on. And the reason he does that is because it's an actual real history, not a Bible story in the sense that some people use that word. Um, or a scripture story, different scriptures that have legends and things like that. This does not tell us how Paul Bunyan created the Grand Canyon or something like that. This is legitimate history. These are real people in real places. And we know that because historians have gone back and checked on these things. And to the extent that they can be verified, they've been verified. That's what we're dealing with. And we started this book, Jesus ascends into heaven. But before he does, he gives his disciples a mission, okay? And we hear the great commission, we talked about that before, at the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, and it says this, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's good to know that he's with us always, for me at least. Um, it just kind of struck me as I was reading that. That's not the part that I was going to highlight, but sweet. Um, so the mission statement of Acts Church, and frankly, the mission statement of the church, his church, Christ's church, is that. That is what we are on mission to do. Okay, we have an eternal view we know this life is short, and while we're here, while there's many other things to enjoy, families and relationships and you know, video games, whatever it is that, that you all like to do, there's many things to enjoy. But ultimately, our mission as believers in Christ and as the church, as a corporate body, is this. We're to go and make disciples, teach them to obey all that he has commanded. Okay, So he says this, and, and he's telling them, what I've told you, which is that as you make a disciple of Christ, a follower, a student, one who is walking in the footsteps of Christ, you become fully you. He is telling us how to thrive. Jesus is not saying, go make disciples for me so that I can have all these people, so that I can be very prideful about all the people that follow me. God doesn't need us in that way. Okay, He's God. does not need you in that way. Okay, He wants you. That's the really cool thing. He doesn't need you one bit. He created you. He wants you. He wants that relationship with you, and he wants you to follow him because he is your creator and knows what's best for you. And I know we all hate submission, and we all hate that kind of stuff to some extent, or at least our flesh does. But he wants us to follow him because he knows what's best for us. He knows how we're going to thrive and become the most us. Instead of running around trying to be like this person or like that person or have this style or that style or stand out this way or that way, he's saying, listen, you already stand out. In eternity, you stand out. You'll be the only you, the only one like you. And the way that you become that way is following me, is becoming my disciple. So that is our mission. 
Okay? If you have not yourself submitted and become a follower of Christ, I'm asking you to start thinking through that process today because it's legit. It's a great life. It's a great life. Not that there's not tough stuff about it, but there is nothing like knowing that you're in the will of God. There's nothing like knowing that you're following him and that he is pleased with you and that you are pleased with him and that there's that relationship happening. So think about that. In any case, that's where Jesus has what he has left with his disciples, right? He said, I have this authority I'm giving you now as my disciples some authority to go out and make new disciples, okay? We recently had Mission Sunday, some of you might remember, and we talked about all that was going on with the different people in the world that we as a church are ministering to, okay? Um, so we are as a church serious about that, how do we know we're serious? Because we take the time, effort, money, and so on to go to these foreign places and preach the gospel, and there's fruit in it. And we see people coming and their lives changing. So that's, that's our mission. That's what we do, right? Um, so in the books of Acts, we see Jesus, the very beginning. So we know about the Great Commission from Matthew. Now we see Jesus saying one more thing. In Acts 1.8, it says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's what happened, by the way. It's amazing how Jesus is always right when he says stuff. Probably because he's God, I'm guessing. But, but he's really good at predicting the future. It's amazing. Um, and, and then after that, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit does descend on the church. We see that. And then since then, we see, since the church began there at Pentecost, really rocking with the power of the Holy Spirit and the 3,000 that came to know Christ that day, We've seen the church going through, I'd just call it a series of adventures, right? We've seen um, threats from within. We've seen threats from without. We've seen struggles. Um, but all of these things that we've read about so far, you may have noticed, have been in Jerusalem. This whole time we've been in Jerusalem. And last week we studied the story of Stephen the deacon, who became the first martyr of the church, the first person to die for Jesus Christ. He was stoned by the Jewish leaders for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. That was last week, okay? So that's where we're, we're going to begin today, leaving off what happened there. Let's get into verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, and Samaria, except the apostles. So Saul was consenting to his death. Saul, that's Paul. Same guy. Sometimes in the Bible, people change their names, or, or the Lord changes their names. In this case, that's what's going to happen. But Saul is this guy who's going to become Paul the apostle. We'll talk about him a little bit later. And it says, at that time, a great persecution takes place, and they were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So you see the map. There's Judea. So Jerusalem's just that little dot. You see Judea and Samaria. That's where all the people are spreading out to. As this persecution comes, boom, they go out to these places. They're running, okay? They're running. People are after them. Um, and so they're out of there, and that's where they end up. So we see the gospel going from that little dot in Jerusalem out into this area, okay? That's what's going on. The Christians, they're afraid, right? Because Stephen got rocks thrown at him until he died. And that is something that is scary. If the reason they did it to him is the same thing that they would be mad at you for, it gets a little scary. So they go to these other areas, okay? We don't know. And I've really tried to find out. But we, I do not have anyone, that any biblical scholar that can definitively give me a date, 
okay, a definitive date for the death of Stephen so that we would know exactly how much time has passed from Pentecost to the death of Stephen. I can tell you this. People's estimates range anywhere from a few months to a few years, okay? It's not like it was 20 years, but from a few months to a few years, I'm probably in the few years camp. I think the church has been in Jerusalem now for probably at least a couple years, okay? So after Christ has um, ascended to heaven, we see this, the church growing, we see all the people, and it's, it's becoming this big thing. I'm thinking that we're talking about a couple years, but there are people who argue that it's as little as several months, literally from Jesus' resurrection to the, to the church doing all that we've seen to Stephen being stoned. So I don't know. I don't know exactly what it is. Um, it tells us here that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And when you read that, you're kind of like, well, wait, hang, hang, hang on a second. Why would they stay? Why would they stay when all the people that they were shepherding are fleeing? Why are the apostles staying? There are a few possibilities why the apostles stayed in Jerusalem at this time when the persecution came. Okay, There's a possibility based on what we see in the text here, that the persecution was largely against the Hellenistic Jews and not the Hebraic or the Hebrew-speaking Jews. We've talked about this a couple times, but if you weren't here, Hellenistic Jews are Jews that speak Greek, generally born in other places, not in Judea, not in Jerusalem, but born in other places in the world, and they're Jewish, totally Jewish, just like the Hebraic Jews, just like the guys who spoke Hebrew, except that their first language was Greek. And a lot of these guys are in the church, remember, partly because at Pentecost, people had traveled from all over the world when all these people got saved. So we have some of those guys that have stayed, guys and girls and kids that have stayed, who are Hellenistic Jews. And then you have just Hellenistic Jews who live in Jerusalem, who have, who have come back from wherever they first lived and had migrated to Jerusalem to be where the temple is and to be part of all of that. So we know Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. And so there's a possibility that what's going on here is that the Hellenistic Jews are largely the ones that are being persecuted. Paul himself was a Hellenistic Jew, and so there's a possibility that his persecution was largely aimed at them. The apostles were not Hellenistic Jews, okay? They were Hebrews. Uh, and so it's possible that the danger for them was not as strong as it was for the Hellenistic Jews, and that there would have been a lot of other Hebrew-speaking Jews who would have still been in Jerusalem that they needed to take care of. Okay, there are also some other possibilities. As these people fled, they would have had to leave their homes and their property and so on. It's possible they stayed to help take care of that. I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of, of possible reasons. Maybe they just wanted to show they had no fear. Maybe they still wanted to contend more with the leaders. I don't know what the reason is for sure. It's possible they were waiting for the Lord to literally tell them, you need to go now somewhere else because he had sent them to Jerusalem first. Either way, we see a lot of the church spreading out into these other regions, okay? Um, so let's look at the next verse here, verse 2. It says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. So we know Stephen, he's the guy who just died for the Lord. And we hear that these devout men carried him to his burial and made great lamentation. And here's the deal. We don't know whether these devout men are even Christians. These could have been godly Jews who actually were very upset with the way that Stephen's death happened. If you remember, the trial was basically a sham. The witnesses were false, and there was never any, any uh, deliberation and then judgment. They just rushed in a mob and went and killed him. So it's possible there were godly Jews who, who believing in Jesus or not, thought this was the wrong way to do this, and they, it's possible they were the ones who buried Stephen. Remember, how many of the Christians are going to run over to his dead body and say, he's my buddy after he just got killed? 
right? So we don't know. It's very possible that, it were, that they were Christians who buried him, followers of Christ who buried him. But it's also possible from the text that these were godly Jews who just were upset with the leaders. And when it says they made great lamentation, that's a very interesting thing, and there's a reason why he tells us that. Because the law, the rule for the Jewish people was you were only allowed to mourn silently for someone who had been condemned to death and stoned in this way. You were not allowed to make great lamentation. It was, it was not the right thing to do. So whoever did this, it was an act of defiance. Whoever buried Stephen with his great lamentation was making a public act of defiance. So whether it was uh, godly Jews who were saying, listen, whatever we believe about Jesus, who they claim is the Messiah, we ought not to act this way. Or whether it was Christians who were saying, hey, you killed my bro, but I'm going to tell you what, I'm still going to defy you by loudly mourning his death and showing that I don't believe that he's a criminal, right? And so that's what's going on as they bury Stephen. Let's get into the next verse here, verse 3. It says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Paul, Saul at this time, was persecuting the church. He was zealous. He was very serious about this persecution. We read in Galatians 1.13, Paul talking about his former actions. He says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. So if you want to know what his mindset is here as we read this passage about Paul, what we find is that his desire was to destroy this church of Jesus Christ, these people who follow Christ as the Messiah, who follow Jesus. He wanted to destroy them. And it says that, that he made havoc, which is kind of not a word we use a lot these days, um, so it's a little bit dated. But let me, let me tell you, I'll give you a little glimpse of what the Greek means there so you have some understanding because I want you to kind of put yourself in the place of these people, okay? You came to church, right? Some guy was talking, talked about Jesus, made sense. Holy Spirit, you know, is drawing you to him. You become a believer. And then all of a sudden you're in this position where this persecution is going on. What was this like? What was the mindset of the people, of the men who are persecuting the church? So havoc is described as this, okay? It means to affix a stigma to, to dishonor, to spot, defile, to treat shamefully or with injury, to ravage, devastate, ruin. The word only appears in the whole New Testament. This Greek word only appears in this verse, okay? But in other literature, other Greek literature, the word means to destroy and the, and the connotation of the word in other literature is, is used to describe a person who's torn up by wild animals like lions or wild pigs or wolves or whatever. The, the idea of a, of a person being just ravaged by wild animals. That's the, that's the hate and the anger and, 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 and the emotion that is with Paul, Saul at this point, and those who are persecuting the church. Saul is making havoc. He's coming to get you. He's very serious about it. He wants to kill, destroy the church. And so that's where we are. And Luke would have been familiar. He can write. He uses this word. Like I said, the only place it's used. He, it's a colorful word, and he uses it on purpose. And he would have had a unique knowledge of it because he hung out with Paul and would have heard Paul's testimony. Not only did he hang out with Paul and would have heard Paul's testimony about what he was doing and how he felt at the time, but he would have met many of the people who would have been the subject of Paul's persecution. So Luke is letting us know persecuting the church is not saying, 
I don't like Christians, okay? Or suing somebody. Persecuting the church, this guy was after blood. This guy was after people's livelihoods. That's what this persecution was. And we sometimes um, today talk about um, persecution of Christians in our country, right? Um, that, that, that there's persecution. And, and here's the thing. There are places in the world where there's persecution like this, like what we read about here going on right now. The kind of persecution that we see in our country is real, but it's very, very different, okay? It's more like you are, and it's, it's legitimate. I mean, I'll tell you, having been someone who's done a lot of education, I can tell you that there are a lot of spots that are just simply not going to be open to you if you profess Christ. There are jobs that you just will not get. And, and that will become more and more and more true as time goes on. There is a, uh, a feeling. There are people who hate Christ. There are people who hate Christians. And there are people who think that anybody who names the name of Christ or who follows Jesus is just stupid. Right? Because they, because, you know, it's a fairy tale or because whatever, whatever their reason is for it. Obviously, I haven't seen the evidence and worked through it, but they've, but they've come to this place where they feel that way. And, yeah, that's persecution. That's a form of persecution. But until... Someone comes to your door to tie you up and take you to prison, we probably don't know what it means to be persecuted like these guys were persecuted. And it would put a different uh, perspective on what it means to be a Christian if, if that was what was going on, okay? Um, so remember that these people had been meeting in the temple. They'd been meeting house to house, which means there were Christians, followers of Christ, who owned homes. And these guys, when this persecution came and they spread out, they would have had to leave their homes, all their property. They were fleeing. They were running. They were running for their lives. And they would have just had to leave stuff behind, okay? Um, there's a serious price to pay for these folks to follow Jesus. And here's the deal. The price is no smaller now than it was then, which is to say this. Jesus is asking you the same thing he asked them, to be willing to give up everything for him. To be willing to give up everything because following him is of more value than your stuff. That's what the kind of relationship he's calling you into. He's calling you in. When you get married... Your husband or your wife has an expectation of you that you're going to follow them or go with them to the ends of the earth, you know, richer, poorer, sickness and health, right? My wife only let us say the rich and health part. She didn't let the other part, the poorer and stuff. Um, so that's why I became a pastor, right? Um, but whatever the case is, you're going with those people. You're saying, I'm going wherever, whatever it takes. I'm with you. We're together. Christ is asking something even greater than that absolutely everything. You must be willing to let go of absolutely everything. If you love your house or your car or your kids or your spouse or your friends or your guns or whatever it is that you're into, your video games, whatever that is that you're into, you love that more than him. In other words, you're not willing to let that go for him. You're not following him. That's not what it means to be a follower of him. If there's something above him, it's an idol. That's what he's calling you to. So whether the threat is at your door right now or not, okay, whether it's there or not right now, the same heart has to be there for, for a Christ follower, that you're willing to let everything go. What I want you to do is I just want you to think for a minute. Just slow your mind down for a minute, and I want you to think about this. Would you give everything up if he asked you to? 
if following Jesus means that you might have to give everything that you have, all the things that you find important, you might have to give them up, would you still follow him? I'm going to read a story in Matthew. There's a story about Jesus and a rich guy. Okay, And it says, Now behold, one came and said to him, to Jesus, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. So he's saying, So you're admitting that I'm God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Right? Sounds like a lawyer to me. Um, which, which commandments do I have to keep? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? In other words, I, I've never done anything wrong. What do I still lack? Now, of course, Jesus knows what this guy's heart is, right? He's asking how he can do what he needs to do to earn his salvation. And Jesus plays along up to this point. But once this guy says, I've never done anything wrong, this is what Jesus says to him. If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, how many of us, if we were being honest, we were being just totally honest with ourselves, being real, how many of us, if we were told that now, hey, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to let whatever it is that you're holding up, whether that's a person or a relationship or a thing, you're going to have to let that go. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to let it go. How many of us would walk away sorrowful? That's something to think about because as we get poor deeper into what it means to be a Christian, as we get serious about it, as we put aside the the beginning things, I'll call them, okay? The elementary things. And we start to see what the true call is of a Christian to have an eternal view, to say, Jesus over everything. I trust him over everything. I would give up everything for him as we do that. You know, we've got to think about where we are. We've got to be honest with ourselves and then figure out once, then you can start to identify what those functional saviors are in your life. What are you really looking to? If you wouldn't give it up, then that must be the thing that you're truly looking to for your happiness, for your contentment, for your self-esteem, for whatever. Important stuff to think about. And if you need help adjusting some priorities in your life, or you just have questions about living for Jesus, come see us at Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington, this Sunday morning. We'd love to help you figure things out and experience the peace and hope that we know thanks to Jesus. Get easy directions and all the info you need at axechurchnw.org or call 360-885-9000. Hope to see you this Sunday. Well, that's it for today, but please click on the next episode for more with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.